to Fonication, the podcast dedicated to creepy crawlies that give you nightmares. I'm your horrifying host, Jack. I wanted to say like horrifying, like I'm a hoe, but it didn't sound very eloquent as I was saying it. Not that I ever sound eloquent. I've ruined the introduction to this episode. If you're as socially unacceptable as I am, it's possible we have the same favorite holiday, Halloween. Spooky season is the fucking best. Halloween is basically my Easter. There's nothing quite as uplifting as wearing a costume with your jaw ripped off and your entire body just drenched in fake blood. And when you intentionally traumatize children, people cheer for you. It's the happiest time of the year. My boyfriend said we could start decorating in September, so the meat hooks and the dead bodies were in our front yard on August 26th, on the dot. So to celebrate the closing of the sacred spooky season, today's episode is an homage to the Halloweeniest animals I could find. Starting with a classic, the black cat. As practically everyone is aware, black cats are surrounded in superstitions. I mean, realistically, any dark-colored, nocturnal-ish animal that comes into frequent contact with humans is gonna have some level of negative superstitions about them. That's why Halloween-style animals are always like black cats, bats, rats, spiders, ravens, all that shit is considered spooky. But black cats seem to be the most pervasive, probably because there's about a gazillion of them I see cats a hell of a lot more often than I see bats. The black cat superstitions have a couple of different roots, but they all kind of culminated together to be associated with witches. Some people thought that black cats are a witch's familiar, which is kind of like a supernatural being that takes the shape of an animal to help with all of that evil witchcraft. You know, like reading and thinking, probably. Apparently, they could change into human form to act as spies for the witches. Other people believed that the black cats were the witches themselves who had shapeshifted in order to walk around freely. For an age that didn't have access to the internet, it's a pretty natural assumption to make that black cats are witch servants. At least for actual witches, not the women who were just trying to learn to read who got called a witch. A huge tenet of witchcraft, especially back in the pagan times, is connected to nature. If you boil it down, it's basically just hippies with religion and better fashion. Since witches are so into being one with nature, a lot of them were big fans of having pets. And a lot of them liked cats. I don't think that hundreds of years ago, public schools taught that correlation doesn't imply causation. I don't think they even had those words yet. Shit, I don't even think they had public school. Now, all of this spooky association makes me think that black cats are even cooler, but I get that I am an outlier in most circumstances and should not be counted. <laughs> A lot of other people, they view black cats negatively, especially because the Catholic Church started pushing the narrative because they considered pagan witches to be a direct competition in winning the hearts and minds of the people, and threats to their power had to be eliminated, which led to a lot of negative consequences for both cats and witches. The tamest consequence is probably that black cats make up the majority of cats in shelters. Another classic Halloween animal association is the vampire bat. Thanks to Dracula. I am honestly a big fucking fan of bats. They're definitely my top five favorite animals. And they're actually one of the few animals I've been able to witness having sex in person in the wild. And by in the wild, I actually mean on the sidewalk where they crash landed because their in-flight sexy time took too long. I treasure the memory. And the important implication here is that Dracula and his brides would likely have sex while essentially skydiving and they can't release their parachute until they finish or cape, I guess. Whether or not the implication is true depends on what species of bat Dracula changes into. 
probably a vampire bat, so they probably didn't do that. Although, vampire bats aren't native to the Transylvania area, so if he changes into a native Transylvanian bat, like the common pipistrelle bat, then yes, he does. So the implication is true. But the humanoid vampires were not historically linked to bats for a very, very long time. Bats had always been seen as carriers of disease, but not as bloodsuckers. There's only three species of bloodsucking vampire bats, and all of them live in Latin America. They weren't something most people in Europe spreading vampire stories knew about. They thought vampires could shapeshift into wolves or dust or smoke. Once their existence was known, though, the vampiric similarities were immediately identified. So the famous taxonomist Carl Linnaeus gave them the vampire bat moniker. Sort of. He tried to. He definitely meant to. But when he was looking at the specimens that he had, he saw the Malaysian flying fox, which is huge. It's a huge bat. And he thought that the biggest bat must be the blood-sucking monster. So he gave a fruit bat the vampire name. But to people, that was just a name, not a true connection to the vampire creature. Vampires were still portrayed as very, very human with some extra abilities. It wasn't until Charles Darwin saw a real vampire bat, not a fruit bat, feeding on blood that that perception kind of changed, along with the name being corrected, of course. And then people started pushing out all sorts of vampire fan fiction. The Penny Dreadful book, Varney the Vampire, in 1845, was the first piece of literature that had this signature, like, bat aesthetic with the cape and the fangs. And then Bram Stoker comes onto the scene, makes a splash, publishes Dracula, cementing vampires as the shape-shifting bats forever while simultaneously creating the cringiest subset of goth culture. Another classic Halloween monster is, of course, the enemy of vampires, werewolves. Now, I'm not going to get into comparing werewolves and wolves, because I'm pretty sure that's super obvious to everyone. Lycanthropy has been a staple since, like, ancient Greece. But I was thinking about some of the unique characteristics, like being affected by the full moon. And I thought to myself, are there any animals that are affected by the full moon? Nah, of course not. That'd be too unrealistic. And I was wrong, because of course nature decided to be weird again. How do I still get surprised? One wildly unexpected symptom of moon madness is seen in badgers. When the moon is full, they stop peeing. Unfortunately, the explanation is perfectly reasonable. Disappointing. So European badgers pee to mark their territory when they're trying to find a mate. But badger sex takes, like, an hour and a half, which is a long fucking time to be preoccupied next to predators. So they prefer to have sex under cover of darkness. It also helps with the self-esteem issues. When the moon is full, there's obviously more light, and sex is now more dangerous in the not-so-fun way. So they try not to pee and mark their territory. In complete fucking contrast, though, corals think the full moon is the perfect excuse for an orgy, specifically the full moon in December. For Christmas, I guess? I don't know, my family celebrates differently, but I know everybody has their own traditions. Australian corals celebrate by synchronizing the biggest sperm and egg release in the world, turning the Pacific Ocean into a giant cum bucket. To minimize the disgusting imagery, coral cum is pink, so it's very Instagrammable if you're on the beach in December, which is summer in Australia, so you probably are at the beach. To any of my Australian listeners, I don't feel bad about informing you that you've probably swam in coral cum. Stay mad. Another unexpected effect of the lunar craze happens to doodlebugs. If you don't know what a doodlebug is, that's okay. I don't think anybody does. I really didn't. Doodlebugs are the larval stage of an antlion. And you probably don't know what that is either, because who fucking does? An antlion is an insect that looks like a dragonfly that can collapse its wings. But that's not really important. 
What I'm trying to get at is doodlebugs dig little traps in the sand to catch other insects to feed on, which is really morbid for a baby, but it's Halloween season, so it's fine. During the full moon, they dig bigger traps, and the answer seems pretty obvious. Full moon equals more light, equals better visibility in catching prey, equals needing a bigger store space to put all the extra prey. Easy. But then scientists put them in a lab and turned out all the light so they couldn't see any moonlight, and it still happened. So maybe not. Some animals, like scorpions and certain geckos, are biofluorescent in moonlight, which is not the same thing as bioluminescence. Bioluminescence means an animal produces light from an internal chemical reaction, whereas biofluorescence is an animal that is absorbing blue light from the moon and emitting it as a different color, and can only be seen in the presence of the original color of light, meaning they can't glow in complete darkness. I'm not at all sure why scorpions glow in moonlight because that seems really counterintuitive. I feel like that would be detrimental to hunting their prey. You don't see lions wearing orange construction vests. Maybe it's to warn the prey higher in the food chain that they're venomous? Who knows, but it looks cool. So they're very stylish. God knows beauty is pain and sacrifice. The next Halloween classic spooky boy is Frankenstein's monster, the hack and slash reanimated necrotic softy, the un-undead Lenny from Of Mice and Men. Gonna focus more on Frankenstein's monster rather than the doctor himself because I don't wanna go down those experimentation rabbit holes on the internet. Or in my life in general, to be honest. So the first thing about Frankenstein is that he's composed of different parts from different people, which sounds a whole lot like organ donors, honestly. Although, would Frankenstein's monster have the same concern with immunosuppressants and scar tissue and stuff? I feel like yes, because he's not a zombie. Once he's reanimated, he has like a living body, right? So I feel like those cells would start like working as a normal body would. Anyways, organ transplants are actually becoming more common in animals. I love living in the age where we treat our pets like living creatures, wild concept, like they're part of the family. People out here getting their cats new kidneys and prosthetics and shit. But this also makes me think of hybrid stuff, like a chimera. Obviously there's a lot of instances of hybrid animals like ligers and mules and zonkeys and shit, which sounds like such a shitty idea but a lot of the times it works out just fine, or even better. In quite a few livestock hybrids, it takes the better traits from each parent and just becomes this super offspring. That's just like... And there's a pretty common phenomenon called hybrid vigor. The hybrid offspring just gets Hulk mode and gets significantly larger than either of the parents. So this happened to ligers and they're actually like the same size as the prehistoric saber-toothed tiger which were obviously fucking massive. In a hybrid that's a little bit more, or a lot a bit more mad scientist, the Salk Institute's Professor Ispisua Belmonte, probably butchered that, I'm so sorry, created a pig-human hybrid. I said human, pig-human hybrid. And that is excellent content for a clickbait title in scientific journals. I mean, it obviously grabbed my attention as well as the attention of a whole lot of other people because it became this whole big controversy to the surprise of not a goddamn soul. Naturally, he received no funding and had to finance the whole experiment privately. But considering the same lab did the equally controversial three-parent embryos, I'm sure they were expecting it. So as I started reading about it, I was very, very disappointed that it's not some fucked up horror movie version of a pig-human hybrid with like human feet but pig legs or something, or you know, just like a human baby with a pig snout? <laughs> I don't know, but you get it. But it's essentially a pig, a regular pig, with human cells floating around inside of it. It looks and behaves 
exactly like a regular pig with no human cells. But in the future, if his Franken-pig creations continue to pan out, there will be pigs with human organs walking around. His goal was to create viable organs for transplants that wouldn't be rejected by human bodies. And pigs have a shocking amount of similarities to humans. That's probably why human meat is called long pig when cannibals eat it. And why we taste similar to pork. Yeah, that's probably, that's probably why. Before you guys ask, no, I have not eaten human meat. But yes, I would if given the opportunity. Like when I got the opportunity to try camel, I knew I wasn't gonna like it, but I obviously wasn't gonna say no. Same thing. So if there was a situation where I could eat a human filet and I knew it was, you know, ethically sourced human meat, I would absolutely give it a try. Actually, no, not a filet. If we taste like pork, then like a, a pork chop. A pork chop of human. I guess we would probably go well with applesauce. Actually, gonna sidetrack here real quick to give out some important information to my American listeners. Cannibalism is actually legal in all states except for Idaho. It's only the trade of human meat that's illegal, as well as most of the methods of acquiring it. You can't sell it, you can't buy it. Eating it is fine, buying it and selling it is not. But there's a guy who took full advantage of the legality when he was in a crash and his foot and lower leg got amputated. He called up 11 friends and asked them if they wanted to have a nice little brunch with human fajitas, and 10 of them showed up. So if you ever get that opportunity, you don't have to decline as long as it's free of charge. And pork pairs best with white wine, so grab a Chardonnay. A quick look, and I'm pretty sure the laws are the same in UK and Australia, but don't quote me on it. I'm not a lawyer. Honestly, you kind of shouldn't take my word for anything. Anyways, back to the animals, but still pigs though. The main thing about Frankenstein is the reanimating the dead part and hubris. There are some animals that are able to be essentially dead and then be reanimated. Like there was a technically multicellular animal that was frozen in Siberian ice for 24,000 years and then they reanimated it, but the truth is that cryonics isn't cool and that doesn't feel Frankenstein-y enough. Researchers at Yale had the daring and legal grounds to fill that gap. They took dead, disconnected pig brains and managed to reanimate them and the brains were functioning again. So the brains, even if they were no longer inside the pigs, were essentially reanimated zombies. They were zombies that wouldn't have been able to actually wake up and have a consciousness or any of the important parts of being alive, but still. From a mechanical standpoint, zombie brains are true facts. True thing that happened. And if you're horrified that they killed a bunch of pigs just to steal their brains and make them alive after they just killed them to make them alive again, don't worry, that's not what happened. They took the brains of pigs that were already dead for unrelated reasons. Waste not. A classic Halloween-y spooky monster that's more animal-like than any of the others is the Gill Man, better known as the Creature from the Black Lagoon. The Gill Man is the last surviving member of an amphibious humanoid race that began in the Devonian period, which is loosely based off of a real legend by some indigenous people in the Amazon. There are a couple times throughout the movies where he's compared to a lungfish, but if he's based off of one, a lot of evolution happened in the meantime. But I see why they chose the lungfish. As their name very obviously implies, lungfish are able to breathe air using both their lungs and their gills, which is how the gill man is able to be on land for short periods of time to go murdering people. They're also the closest living relative to tetrapods, which includes humans. But the animal that they should have compared the gill man to is the tiktaalik, or the tiktaalik, tiktaalik, I don't know, it's, it's spelled weird. But that's the fish that fucked up all of our lives. The stupid fucking fish that climbed out of the water to avoid predators and eventually turned into a human, which is why we're all alive today paying taxes and fake laughing at jokes that aren't even funny in the grocery store. The tiktaalik is basically the fish version of the Archaeopteryx connecting a T-Rex to the hummingbird. 
not only do they have the lungs, but they also actually walked on land, like the gill man. Of the multiple species of fish playing with fire and walking on land today, the lungfish isn't one of them. Epaulette sharks are though, so maybe in a few million years we'll have sentient shark people. I already feel sorry for them. The last spooky subject I have for you guys is the headless horseman of Sleepy Hollow. I've definitely heard about the chicken that managed to survive for 18 months after being decapitated and then only died because he choked. And I know a lot of people have heard about that. So I'm not gonna get into it because I doubt you guys want me to tell you shit that you already know. What I'm hoping you don't know about is that Mike the Chicken's experience is by no means unique. And no, don't worry, I'm not gonna talk about the infamous shitty inhumane science experiments. I'm gonna talk about praying mantises. I guess this is still shitty, but in a cooler way? So most people know that praying mantis females eat their male partners for dessert. I'm really glad that humans aren't related to them considering a lot of common dirty talk phrases, but the female isn't always patient enough to wait until the sex is finished before chowing down and she'll start at his head because it's the closest thing to reach. But nature didn't want this to negatively impact the baby making. So the male is still fully capable of ejaculating inside the female if he loses his head. But at that point, he's basically just a sex doll. If he doesn't have a brain, I doubt he's getting any pleasure at all from the experience. Obviously, the male mantis doesn't live for much longer after that, so I think a better, real-life tormentor of Ichabod Crane would be a fly. It doesn't hurt anything for me to believe that the ghost story is meant to be about a fly, so I choose to perpetuate it. A fly's head doesn't really do a whole lot for it. It basically houses the eyes, so if you behead a fly, you're just gonna have a blind fly. Weirdly, a lot of the brain-like functions are located inside of its back, so you're not fucking up anything neurologically, and it also absorbs oxygen through its skin, so it can definitely still breathe. The only thing it can't do, aside from seeing, is eat, so it'll spend a couple days still annoying the shit out of you before it starves. It also extends to fruit flies, who I've talked about multiple times on this podcast. Fruit flies are great to read about. They're not great. I was gonna say that they're great, but I hate them. They're great to read about. They're great for science. But in short, a bunch of researchers led by Giro Meisenbeck, so sorry if I butchered that again, they decapitated a bunch of fruit flies and fired lasers at the nerves to mimic brain impulses. As a result, they've been able to basically code fruit flies and define what the laser pulses mean to the fruit flies. In the course of their wacky experiments, they managed to implant false memories or to make the fruit flies smell bananas when they see blue light, which is fucking wild. It's basically mind control. It would have a lot of fantastic applications in psychology if they could get people to consent to being beheaded. When I die, presumably at a young age from curiosity killed cat syndrome, please put my head on a plate and shoot lasers at my exposed nerve endings to scare children on Halloween. I'm saying this to the entire internet so it's legally binding. Until next time, I love you guys. Bye. Thank you.